country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. And welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Gemma Purdy from the Australia Indonesia Centre. Today's topic is Jakarta's floods. Earlier this month, Jakarta experienced some of its most deadly flooding. Beginning on New Year's Eve, torrential rain caused some of the worst flooding seen in and around Jakarta in over a decade. In places, the water reached chest high. Residents of this low-lying city are used to flooding during the monsoon. However, this time, the heavier rainfall was more severe than normal. It's estimated over 100,000 people were forced to flee their homes. And over 60 died. Fixing Jakarta's flood problem has been a political issue for a long time. And again, in the wake of the recent floods, blame has been sought. Debate about the presence of riverbank settlements along the city's main Chiliwung River has long been the focus for politicians and policymakers, with their removal a feature of the former governorship of Basuki Chahaya Purnama and current Governor Anis Baswedan. But what about the people who live now or have lived in these settlements, risking the threat of flood and eviction? Who are they? What has brought them to live in such precarious conditions? What is their everyday experience of living with Jakarta's regular floods? Can they be a part of the solution to better tackling this problem for a city destined only to become wetter with climate change? My guest today is anthropologist Roan van Voost, who has lived along the banks of the Chiliwung River. We talk about the history and complex social structures within these communities, their self-sufficient warning and recovery systems after flood and how they negotiate their vulnerabilities every day. Rowan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Can you start, please, by telling us about Bantarangkali, the area where you carried out your fieldwork? Who lived there and what is the history of this settlement? Well, Bantarangkali is, well, first of all, it's a name that I chose together with the residents. So it's not an actual name, but it means along the riverbanks. And this is what it is. It's an unregistered, illegal, you could say, neighborhood built by people themselves. It's on the border of center and south Jakarta. It's a slum, we could say as outsiders, but what I have described in one of my books is that for people themselves, it's the best place in the world. They find it their little village. They find it the best place in Jakarta for them to live because it's affordable. Like I said, they built their houses themselves, often made out of wood and asbestos. It's an old neighborhood, so people came there when Jakarta was getting busier and busier and more economy was needed. Often these people worked at the railways that is located right next to it. If you try to envisage this neighborhood, it's built in between a railway and a river. It's the Chiliwung River that runs through the whole of Jakarta. Jakarta is cut through by 13 rivers and the Chiliwung is one of the biggest. It's also a river that overflows quite often, unfortunately. And what has happened over the years with this little neighborhood is that it became bigger and bigger until several hundred families lived there. And the river became narrower and narrower because what these people did is they would arrive and then build a house with scraps and materials that they found in the river or alongside the riverbank. And then they would 
built their house on top of the riverbank. And basically, the houses became denser and denser. The streets became narrower and narrower. And so did the river, because the riverbank became eventually bigger than the river itself. So the river started with about 50 meters, and it's now five meters narrow, which has a lot to do with the houses that were built. But it also has to do more with the garbage that comes not from these people. Let me be very clear about that. Not necessarily from these people, although they will have a little bit of garbage as well that they toss into the river because there's no garbage pickup system. But most of that garbage comes from upper areas above Jakarta, the wealthier areas above Jakarta, where people also toss in the garbage, where industries and companies do the same. And so all that garbage kind of sticks there on the plants, on the riverbanks. And so less and less space there is for the water and more for garbage and people. Now, from the outside, like I said, when I started to do my field work there, in, in my book I describe how I arrive in that scene where it was completely dark and I really had no idea where we were going. I recall my you know, slippers being stuck in the mud all the time. And I kind of just followed one of the residents who was a young boy and who took me into his chosen family. He was an orphan, so he didn't really have a family, but he had lived there for most of his life. And he lived in a shack or a little hut without walls to the side, but it had a roof. And um, I slept there with him and 10 or so other residents who also did not have a house for themselves, but they shared their house. And that was my first kind of getting to know the neighborhood. And when we arrived, there were no lights, obviously. They don't have street lamps. Or But in the morning, I saw the river. I could see that it was quite lively. I mean, most people came to live there either because they were working for the railway or because they would work and still work on the night market, which is quite nearby. So it's a huge market in Jakarta and a wonderful livelihood opportunity for if you basically have nothing and cannot work in an office, don't have any education or diplomas, no formal education, I should say, or diplomas. And so what these people do is they will, you know, fry snacks or fry rice or something that they can make with relatively cheap ingredients and they will sell that on a night market. And so all they need is a tiny little house where they can cook. So their house is almost always also their working place. And then with that, in three or four in the night, they will, you know, fill up their stalls and then head to the market. Mm. So that was all that I could see. And then I ended up living there for over a year in one of the tiny little houses on that riverbank. So I would get to know the neighborhood a lot better in the course of years. And then over the past six years, I've been back and forth. So nowadays it feels really like home. You mentioned the unregistered neighbourhood that this is. What are the combination of vulnerabilities that you mentioned in your research? You've already touched on the poverty, but what are the other aspects that are really prominent? Yeah, thanks for asking that. It's an interesting and very complicated issue there. When I say unregistered, I don't want to use the word illegal as such, even though government or policymakers would probably describe it as an illegal neighborhood, by which they mean that people do not have certificates for the houses that are recognized by the urban planners or the policymakers that are now in charge. And I emphasize 
the now aspect of that because this is an older neighborhood and people actually had oftentimes had certificates for their houses or they would have like old receipts which stated that they had bought it from somebody who originally built the house only these certificates and those receipts are not recognized so people are constantly threatened by eviction and in fact a large part of the neighborhood where i used to live has now been evicted government or other institutions can do that because these neighborhoods were never planned. They were never drawn on any map. And that is why we call them unregistered, right? So urban planners who thought about the way in which they wanted Jakarta to grow did not include these neighborhoods. They included a lot of things that never came up and they also included, you know, green zones. And if you look into Jakarta's maps, you'll see a lot of greenery. In the sketches, you'll see 30% of the city would have to be green. And I think nowadays, even if you count the tiny pieces of grass in between the highways, you'll get up to 9%. Um, the rest of that greenery simply never came into being because Jakarta is such a wanted city to live, especially for poor folks who come from rural areas and who just simply do not have an income there. You know, they're drawn to Jakarta because they hope for a better life. And so they build their house or they find a little empty spot and kind of set up a life there. Mm. And that is what happened with Bantarankali. So more and more people came, only this neighborhood was never planned. People do pay rent, right? So you have house owners. So the original owners, sometimes the people that built the house in the beginning, like in the 60s, or um, they still have the rights to that house, or at least locally recognized rights. And then they will rent out the house to newcomers, to migrants, and then will pay rent and they will have receipts of that rent. Mm -hmm. They also pay for electricity that is often state owned. So this makes it very complicated, right? So for people, they think that they are doing things in the right way because they pay their monthly rent, they pay their electricity, they pay taxes even to the government. But every now and then there will be a warning from the government saying, hey, you live in a neighborhood that was never planned for. We don't want this neighborhood to be there, so you will be evicted anytime soon. And sometimes the bulldozers come in into these neighborhoods and people suddenly lose everything they had built or paid for. Mm -hmm. So it's a very complicated system where it's very unclear. I mean, even for me, having done my PhD research there, being relatively highly educated, knowing quite a bit, having, having a good network where people could help me understand land rights in Jakarta, housing rights in Jakarta, even I was still utterly confused all the time because it just seemed so counterintuitive. Hmm. that people were paying to the government, but that not being recognized as formal residents. Yeah. So th the vulnerability that we're talking here is flooding. And that was the main focus of my research when I got there. I wanted to understand why do people live next to a river that is constantly overflowing? But then I ended up seeing that people were juggling several risks and that was flooding, but it was also serious poverty, which gets people into deep problems as soon as they one of the family members becomes ill or something else happens. And then there was also the constant threat of eviction. And that for people was perhaps the largest risk because if you would be evicted and a bulldozer comes in and you lose everything, 
you have built up, literally, including your furniture, the school diplomas of your children, the school uniforms of your children, uh, because everything goes down with the bulldozers, then you get deeper into poverty. And if people get deeper into poverty, they will build a new house as soon as they get the chance onto a spot that might be even more dangerous because it might be another place along the riverbank, but perhaps a place that is further away from the night market, which means that their income drops as well. See, so it's a very kind of dangerous triangle of risks that people are confronted with and live with. Mm, absolutely. Can we get back to the eviction question in a moment? I really do want to talk about that. But first of all, mm. to the flooding, which is the main reason, as you said, that you went to this place. You wanted to understand why people would live in a flood-prone area like that. Can you tell us what is the risk? What is the daily or monthly or yearly risk or lived experience for people who are living in that settlement on the, on the river there? Yeah, so it's a couple of times a year people would live with smaller floods, which I labeled as floods, but oftentimes the people living there or my neighbors back then would say, oh, but this is not a flood. This is just what the river does, right? But they would wade knee high through the water. And so the water would enter their houses. And so most of the people had tiles as soon as you could afford it. So you build your house made of wood and asbestos on the roof. And then you start with a floor made of perhaps a bit, uh, wood or mud or cement. But then as soon as people can afford it, they will invest into tiles because these tiles are much more easy to clean. That is important because even if you have a small flood or a non-flood, as those people would call it, you will get dirty water into your house. Now, this Chili Wung River is very much polluted. It's a river that is used by these people to do laundry, to wash themselves in, you know, to bathe. But it's also a river that is used by companies to dump their waste in. And so when I was looking outside of my tiny little house, I could see piles of garbage bags drifting in that river, but also weird floral colored chemical bubbles really drifting upon that river. And that was probably just a waste of some factory higher up. So you can imagine that every time that you have a tiny flood, children get ill, the elderly get ill, they will get, you know, skin diseases that nobody really understands because these people are too poor generally to have a doctor from the outside coming in. So nobody knows. All you can see is that people are walking around with red skin, that children are crying a lot, you know, often because their skin is really itchy. People will have diarrhea or other kind of stomach bugs or worse. And so after each flood, you will have an outbreak of diseases. And then a couple of times a year, you will have larger floods that can get up to three meters high. And this often sounds impossible for people when I tell them about my research, mm. because they, they won't understand that, you know, the river really tends to cause floods that are three meters high. But the reason is these houses were built so close to one another that the hallways are really narrow. And so the water kind of creeps up in between these houses. It's and like so it funnel. gets, right. yeah, it, it, it gets really high. And that's extremely dangerous because if you think about a slum or a squatter settlement you will see that often the rooftops are built against each other right so on top of a hallway you will have rooftops 
So what happens sometimes is that people get stuck in between the water and the roofs mm. of the houses, and then often, you know, they, they will not survive that. Another problem is that there are electricity poles and electricity cables throughout the neighborhood because people have not very professionally built electricity systems walking through the neighborhood. And so when there's a flood, there's a lot of risk that the electricity will cause problems that people are electrified, unfortunately. This happens like twice a year that there will be a larger flood. When I say a larger flood, I'm thinking of a flood that might be three meters high. It will stay there for one or two days. So people get really ill, but they will not flee their houses. They will clamber on rooftops or on balconies and try to survive there basically. Mm -hmm. And then once every five years or so, there will be a massive flood that will actually be on the news in Australia, perhaps even in Europe where I live. And those are the floods that do not only affect this little poor neighborhood and other poor neighborhoods along the riverbanks, but the majority of Jakarta, which is also why it gets onto the news because suddenly wealthier residents cannot reach their offices. You know, everybody is affected. But for these people, living with floods is something that happens very frequently. And not so many people will die of the floods, luckily enough, but loads of people will get sick and severely ill. And so you'll have elderly people dying afterwards, like two weeks after. And most importantly, perhaps, people will get deeper into poverty every time a flood affects them. Wow. And personally, you experienced a year of these floods. So you went through the high floods and the lower floods or the non-flood, as you referred to them. Can you describe a little bit just from practical terms about how people manage their possessions in their homes? How do they get around during one of these events? Yeah, I mean, what is very interesting is that people, as they cannot lean onto a social safety net because they don't have insurances, they don't have bank loans, they can't, right? They they don't, they're not wealthy enough, basically. What they have constructed in the neighborhood, and this is also the reason why they often call it the best place in the world, because they have constructed their social safety net in such a way that they basically have a lot of what you would expect otherwise to come from a government. So for one, they have people who work informally in the neighborhood as warners for flood. Uh, they have different names for these people, but they walk around. Often they invested the little money that they have into walkie-talkies or radio systems where they can pick up on the frequency that is also used by flood gatekeepers throughout Jakarta. And so they can pick up what is being said over the radio about potential floods. And then as soon as they expect that this might get serious, they will walk door to door in the neighborhood and bang on your door and say, hey, there's a flood coming up. Please make sure that you're safe. And this is what I experienced a couple of times as well, that you know, suddenly in the midst of the night, somebody's banging on your door and then you'll check your phone and you'll see that you've received five text messages with the same warning saying, Rowan, Maubanjir, a flood will come. Please make sure that you're safe. And then you kind of know what to do. You have to make sure that your most important possessions are safe. Now, of course, for me, this was very different than for people. So what I would do is I would make sure I had very little possessions with me, but I had my laptop, right? Because I was doing my research. So I would pack that into plastic as my neighbor had taught me. 
When I moved into the neighborhood, I was living with a woman who asked me to pay the rent for a full year ahead, which was relatively easy for me because that would be about the monthly rent that I had to pay back in Amsterdam where I, where I live normally. And then she used all that money to move out of the room where we had lived together for two weeks or so and built a new house atop her old one, so atop the room that I was now living in, so that during floods, I could flee to her tiny apartment, which was really, really tiny. It was barely room enough for two people to sit in, mm. but that was her house now. And so whenever it was flooding, I would flee up to her apartment. Her downstairs apartment, so the apartment where I was living, was tiled for most of the place, so we could easily scrub that clean after a flood. We would have a system where we would tie up the mattress up to the ceiling so that that would stay safe. And then all of the furniture was made out of plastic. As most people had, they either chose to have no furniture, so they would just simply sit on the tiles, or they would have plastic furniture so that it could be cleaned very easy. People also had made sure that they had their formal documents, like the diplomas of their children, the school diplomas, but also their wedding, their marriage certificates and their birth certificates. They would have that plastified so that when a flood was being warned for, they knew that those certificates would remain safe. They often had a bag, like a plastic bag, hanging right next to their door. And that plastic bag contained the most important documents, perhaps a little medicine, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps a little cash money, their mobile phone, so that they could flee instantly. And then people would use different coping mechanisms. And I started with noting all of these risk coping styles, as I call them. Mm -hmm. And I ended up recognizing five or six kind of deep patterns. You could say that there are a couple of things that everybody does, like listening to floods or knowing that it's there or having a network, you know, plastifying your documents. Those were common things, but there were also clearly distinguishable patterns. And I call those risk coping styles and whichever risk coping style you adhere to is a bit personally dependent. But what might be interesting just as a last sentence here is that as soon as the flood warnings come in, the neighborhood buzzes. Mm -hmm. It's everybody starts doing things. So you can hear doors slamming, you can hear people screaming. Some people have rubber boats, other people will have a network and they will run to this neighbor because they have agreed that that neighbor will cook for them while they are guarding both their house and the house of the neighbor. Because when floods come in, some people flee the neighborhood but thieves might get in. Mm -hmm. So they have a warning or um, a security system going on there. They have people who guard the medicines. And so they have a division of tasks, really, that at least perhaps not makes it livable to live with flooding, but at least kind of diminishes or lessens the risk. Wow. So it's a highly cooperative society where everyone knows their role and has their role. To go back to your point about eviction, as you described it, when you know, when an eviction takes place, the bulldozers literally come in and nothing can protect the residents of the settlements in that case. You mentioned that Bantarankali has been affected by the eviction. So is there a settlement left? There's a little part of the neighbourhood uh, left, but... It's not a lot. So it's basically the houses that were built a bit 
closer towards the rail railing station and a bit further off the actual river. Those are still standing. Nobody knows for how long because the past 10 years there have been warnings for evictions. And, you know, then when I was living there at first, I would hear these warnings for evictions and I would be kind of scared. I mean, even for my own housing situation, I was kind of wary because I kept hearing government officials, also the ones I was interviewing, warning like, oh no, there's going to be an eviction. But then I realized like after eight months, I got used to it. Then after a year, I almost didn't hear these warnings anymore. Then after four years, when I was no longer living in the neighborhood, but I would still visit the neighborhood a couple of times a year, I was completely numb to these warnings. Mm. Now, for the people in my neighborhood, they had been hearing these warnings for 10 or 20 years. So it was normal for them. It was just nothing ever happens, but they keep saying this until it happened. And so one morning, I was already back in the Netherlands. I kept getting text messages of my neighbor saying, oh, the bulldozers have come. It has begun. And so the majority of the neighborhood was bulldozers that same day, which meant that people were just walking around teary-eyed on top of what had been their belongings, but like furniture, nothing was safe. You know, everything was just racked, really. Mm. Yeah, a couple of tens of shacks are still standing, Nobody knows for how long, but they are still standing. And it has to do with, see, the, the reason that the government has for bulldozering these neighborhoods is twofold, I would say. One is that, and this is what they present also, is that the flood problem in Jakarta is real. And it is a, a real problem to say that all these very poor people live upon the riverbanks, which makes the river so narrow that the water really has no space to overflow. So... Originally, in the plans of Jakarta, like I said, it was supposed to be the case that this city would be metropolitan and urban and economically sustainable, but also very green. And the reason is that it's located in a low area and above Jakarta, there are hills and the water flows from these hills through Jakarta towards the Java Sea. So in order to keep that safe for everybody to live there, you need alongside the river, you need a couple of meters of greenery where the water can absorb. Nowadays, that's just no longer the case because not just squatters have built their settlements on top of riverbanks, but, you know, government institutions right. have been built there, offices have been built there, high income flats have been built there. Everybody has just kind of built ad hoc mm -hmm. and there has been no space for the water over the past years when Jakarta was growing and growing. And so nowadays, this is an accurate problem. And, you know, it is true that these people, but also other offices have to be moved in order to create more space for, for the water again. So that's one part. And then another part why the government is trying to keep these squatters away is that they want to clean up the city. They want to be a modern city. They don't want their city to look like one massive slum, like a city of slums, as it has been called in literature about Jakarta. So, you know, what they want is to have the middle class living in planned neighborhoods and then the poor people in flats, basically, social housing flats or whatever, or on the outskirts of the city. But Jakarta itself needs to look like a modern, clean, registered, organized city. And that is another reason why they have these eviction programs 
that are extremely harsh, and even though you could say that they are necessary in order to solve at some point the flooding system, researchers know and policymakers know is that just evictions are not going to do so much if you don't really solve the real problems that cause flooding. And those are not just caused by squatters. That's tiny fragment of the problem. The accurate, the real problem is that there's just not enough space for the water to flow and Jakarta is sinking. The land of Jakarta is clinging in because there's no piping system for people to have clean drink water. And so instead, everybody, including my neighbors, including I myself when I was living there, but also including government offices and big industries and big factories, pump up the water that is relatively shallow below the ground to be used, which is why the land is clinging in. And so that's the, the real problem. And that would be the real solution to create a drinking water piping system throughout the city. Mm -hmm. But nobody wants to do that because that would be a horrible, horrible government task to do because it would basically put down half of the city. Can you imagine all these thousands, millions of people living there being faced with not just floods, but also roadworks that would make the traffic jams even worse. Now, yeah. that is something that nobody wants to do. And then it is just a much easier government task to say, hey, I'm cleaning up this part of the city and look at me. I've evicted these people. And so now it looks nice. You know, now we can build a nice green park there and it will look nicer. Yeah. And I mean, the extreme thing is let's just move the entire capital. Which yeah, is actually which is now real. seriously being debated, right? Yeah. So where did the people go who were evicted from your community there? What happened to them? Where did they move? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've been a consultant for some development agencies and government in, involved in aid. And we often had these discussions where I said that I can see that eventually you cannot keep these people living alongside riverbanks, just like you cannot have government offices or factories standing there. It's just too big a risk. So I can see that these people have to move. Now, ideally, you would have an alternative housing for them, right? Because they have, at least in their system, for their understanding, and from the fact that they are paying rent and taxes and electricity prices, to the government, you can see then it would be really unfair to just say, okay, so now we're taking all that you have and we'll let you find a way for yourself to, you know, rebuild your life, basically. So you would have an alternative housing in place. Now, this is often being promised to people. So you will have government officials promising, and I have this on camera from the time I was still living there, you will have government officials coming to the neighborhood and saying, you know, we're going to make sure that you have a new house, you will be living in a nice flat, it will have everything you need, but then the flats are never built. And so the far majority of these people is just spread out over the city. They found their own place, oftentimes just a couple of hundred meters further mm -hmm. along the riverbanks. They just rebuilt their house again from scratch. Some people were actually moved to a social housing institute, but the problem there is that oftentimes they only get a contract for one year, which basically states that they can live there paying rent. Oftentimes the rent is much higher than they used to pay, but they can live there paying a rent to the government 
But then after one year, the government finishes the contract and nobody knows until when they can live there. Mm -hmm. And so that that is a big problem that people have no security. So yes. they felt much safer in their own house, because even though the contract of the house wasn't recognized, they had some sort of document that it was theirs. They had some sort of proof, which they don't have in the in the flats. Mm -hmm. Another problem was that oftentimes the flats were just really not made for their needs. Mm -hmm. So I have worked with neighborhoods, for example, in the north of Jakarta, you had a lot of fisher communities living nearby the sea. And those people would be relocated to flats that had no elevator and they would live on the 10th or 8th floor. And so they would have to kind of walk up and down the stairs. Now, these oftentimes the fishermen are, are rather old and they would have to walk up and down the stairs with buckets filled with their fish and you know wow. it was really really heavy for them it was undoable so what these people would end up doing is just move out of that flat again and find a different house somewhere in Jakarta or build a different house that was at least located on the ground so that they you know could do their work people from my neighborhood like i said they would work on markets. So first of all, this flat that they were allocated to was located hours and hours of walking away from their market where they would have their regular customers. And so they would try to walk there, but it would take yeah. a long time and they cannot afford public transport. Right. And taxis are super expensive for them. So it would drive them deeper into financial problems. And of course, you can find a new market and you can find new customers, but that takes a couple of buffer kind of investing networking months that they could simply not afford. Moreover, they were not allowed to cook inside their house. There was no space for them to create or make the dishes that they would sell on the market. So this was all very complicated. It was a nice try, but the flats just did not meet their needs. And I would say their basic need or their most important need was having a sense of safety that at least now that they were evicted once or sometimes 10 times, right? I mean, the people that lived in my neighborhood, so to speak, had a past of being evicted from neighborhoods throughout Jakarta again and again. So what they really wanted was a sense of safety for their new house. They were okay with moving house, but they just wanted to be sure that this time they could build a life and a house, but then the contract would only last for one year, for example, and they had no guarantee afterwards. And like I said, there were built, I think, flats for 7,000 people, mm. while in the year that my neighborhood was evicted, 40,000 people were evicted. So for the large majority, there was nothing arranged. This is just sounding so dire. What structural changes or you know, what can be done to bring about better outcomes for these people? Thank you for asking that one. Well, first of all, I think it is important to not see these people only as victims, but to do look at them in, in with awe because I find them so resilient and I find them so extraordinarily creative and they are so used to kind of surviving by themselves that these, I mean, if I were an employer, I would instantly hire these people because they're so kind of used to solving daily problems that are huge that I think we shouldn't think of them as only being weak. They're vulnerable, but they're also very strong. So that is one point that I'd like to make. And then Another one is that we should not be naive. So when a government or even when a development agency perhaps involved in housing or social flats, as they call it, if they say that they are consulting the locals, 
if they say that it's a bottom-up participation project, then I hope that people are reminded of this story because oftentimes what is being called consulting means nothing more than going to a neighborhood one time and then having talks with the locals where you kind of just, you know, make statements or make promises that nobody records or nobody will ever hold you up to because these people have no power, not really, not political power that is being recognized in the city. So if any of the listeners is ever involved in a development project or an aid project or perhaps an urban planning project, I hope that they will emphasize that actual consultation means not just people listening to what people want once and then forgetting all about it and, you know, going along with the developers that were already familiar or that have fancy looking plans, but instead making sure that the people co-designed urban planning. So for example, people in this neighborhood, and I've done this with my research, worked with me on what would you need in a new flat? Say that you would have to move, even if you wouldn't like it, because it would mean change, what would you need? And they came up with brilliant ideas, like we would need public kitchens so that we would have the space to create our own dishes on the ground floor. And we would need a place where we could park our little stalls for the market. Also one of our needs would be that we would need to have some kind of guarantee that we could continue to live there. If you can give us that guarantee, we would move voluntarily to such a flat apartment. Mm -hmm. But make sure that the flat apartment is built close to the neighborhood market so that we would have an income. You know, these people are not stupid. They have good ideas. So I think for every project that is helping the city in the flood problem, it would be key to actually listen to these people and take their needs and ideas seriously. Because if you don't, you will see that people will move again out of these flats or they will just spread out over the city and you're just basically moving the problem. So that is the second one. And then, of course, the third one is that the reason why these people keep living alongside the riverbanks is that they're looking to build their own social safety system. They're looking to build a livelihood system. And I must say there are politicians like Jokowi or like other politicians that are trying to at least do things like having social security systems for the poorest of the poorest. Not everything is working. And, you know, there's still a lot to be done, but there have been over the years some steps towards recognizing that this is just not feasible, not for these people, but also not for the city as a whole. So I think, you know, that is, of course, you want to do something that lessens their vulnerability. So everything that can give them some sense of safety, whether this be through a health insurance that is now getting into place for poor people, or whether this be through a guarantee that people can actually live in the house that they will take as theirs for longer than one year, everything along those lines really helps. So much to do, and you are a wonderful advocate, and thank you for joining us, Rowan. Thank you so much for having me. That was Rowan van Voost from Erasmus University in Amsterdam. Rowan's books include Natural Hazards, Risk and Vulnerability, Floods and Slum Life in Indonesia, and in Dutch and Indonesian, The Best Place in the World, Living in the Slums of Jakarta. Talking Indonesia will return on the 13th of February. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. 
Thanks for listening. Bye for now.